Today's podcast is brought to you by Ryan, a leading global tax service and software provider that helps companies manage and minimize property taxes from acquisition to disposition and all points in between. As the firm with the most local market property tax professionals across the country, Ryan has experience in nearly every jurisdiction, unmatched by any other national, regional, or local provider. Welcome to WMRE's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at WMRE. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. David, how are you today? I'm doing well. We are about to reach May here, and I think as we've been chronicling in our biweekly episodes, it just seems like everything's, you know, kind of gradually getting better. And we even found out today, you know, de Blasio said that the the goal for New York City is to lift all restrictions by July 1st. So that's, you know, wow. two months from now, we're talking about nothing, you know, like, you know, full, if, I mean, for people who are ready for that full th- theaters and, and, and everything. So it's, yeah, it's just wow. kind of wild that we're, how, how quickly we're kind of coming around now. Yeah, that's fantastic. That'll that'll be great. I know that'll be a big sigh of relief for most people. Today, I know that you've got a special guest on the show, and that's Dory Nolan. Why'd you bring Dory on the show today? So yes, Dory Nolan is the Senior Vice President of National Client Services with Bercadia, and brought her on to discuss the Bercadia Institutional Solutions, which is a new new part of the company. So awesome. relatively new anyway. I think it's a few months old at this point, but still still new enough to to, to, to learn about. So Dory, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. And I'm excited to hear that New York City is going to get back to normal, hopefully by midtime um, July. So that's fantastic. I'm in yeah. Salt Lake City and we just lifted our mask mandate a few weeks ago. So we're slowly getting back to normal ourselves. Yeah, it's nice to hear from, you know, the pod, this podcast has a good chance to talk to people in all different parts of the country. And it's always just interesting to hear how, you know, how it's how the different paces, but also just like the general trajectory in the right direction for the most part. And that's been happening after the year we've had, I think, I think we're all happy for that. I agree. I thought that the best place to start here is is just even, you know, with what I started to talk about, but this group, this Arcadia Institutional Solutions for the audience who may not be uh, familiar with, with uh, the company or, or with this initiative, could you just give us a quick primer on that? Sure, absolutely, David. So in January of 2021, Bercadia announced the acquisition of the apartment brokerage practice of Moran and Company. The partnership launched Bercadia Institutional Solutions powered by Moran, which we're calling a platform dedicated to serving institutional investors nationally through Bercadia's existing suite of robust services and resources combined with Moran's strong institutional investor relationships based on three decades of trust, client service, and collaboration. So we're we're pretty thrilled and excited that we were able to uh, recruit the Moran and company firm as a whole. We brought over 31 members, including Mary Ann King, who was Moran's co-chairman, to be co-head of of institutional sales here at Bercadia. So just expanding our institutional capabilities has been a strong priority for Bercadia. 
and the Moran team's experience and just relationships in the institutional space are the right fit to launch this new specialty resource that we're that will be dedicated to serving institutional investors. So with that, we are bringing even greater focus and dedication to and resources to our clients. So Berkadia Institutional Solutions powered by Moran, I know that's a mouthful, but it's important to keep mm-hmm. the Moran name. We feel, you know, for uh, a period of time, you know, we're thinking 12, 18 months, which then, you know, we could then revisit at a later time, but we share a shared vision for our, our success. So together, we think we're going to be able to bring just extraordinary insights and to help our clients make better informed real estate decisions. And then they'll just benefit from our added value with the expanded team. And we feel that this will also propel some of our additional recruiting efforts in some other uh, markets where we don't have, currently have a presence. And so why was, you said it is a, you know, a priority for, for Katie to kind of grow the institutional side. So why was that a priority? It's been a priority because we, Berkadia historically on, you know, it's been known as a mortgage banking firm for many years. So just looking at Berkadia and its predecessor companies, it really was, was originated out of GMAC commercial mortgage as a mortgage banking platform. And then it's grown into other firms over the years. And then on the investment sales side, Bricadia added a a firm by the name of Hendricks and Partners, uh, I Mm -hmm. believe in 2012, to really move into the institutional sales arena. And Hendricks and Partners historically was focused on more private client and mid-market type of investors. And and up to last year, Bricadia's average deal size on the investment sales side was approximately $23 million dollars. And when we looked at building the institutional practice out more broadly, you know, we've been successful at adding advisors to help us with that effort. And actually, I joined in, in 2019 to help grow the institutional uh, relationships as well. My background is private equity. I ran the investments platform for a firm called Capri Capital Partners out of Chicago sure. that focused sure, yeah. on fundraising for multifamily strategies in, in either a co-mingled or separate account format. So I, I was dealing with large pe- public pension fund plans and we would invest on a wholly owned basis or on a or, or in a joint venture format. So I had a lot of relationships with institutional investors. So when we looked at the landscape, you know, and, and just saw what we were doing, we could have, you know, rounded out and eventually have gotten there, you know, with some of the recruiting efforts, but it was important to make more of a wholesale acquisition. And, and Moran was a great fit just given, you know, just their historical footprint in, in the business and their average deal size was $73 million. So marrying our smaller client and mid-market and, and entering into the institutional arena coupled with Moran's prowess of dealing with more well-heeled institutional investors, average deal size of 73 million. We feel like we're, we finally are a powerhouse and will be a successful advisory unit moving forward into, you know, the future. I don't know if you can name specific clients, but even aside from that, could you, 
what are the types of the institutions that that you are currently working with or that Moran's kind of been been working with? Sure, they're the larger, more institutional clients. So just for example, some of the, I would say LaSalle Asset Management, Heitman, mm-hmm. Invesco, some of the public REITs, Equity Residential, Amley, they're just a, a flavor of, you know, some of the clients that that Moran has historically worked with. And we've dealt with some institutional investors and have sold for them over the years. But now this kind of rounds out, you know, some of the prior experiences that we've that we've had, you know, coupled with their, you know, deeper relationships. What are the, you know, given that we've, we've had this super tumultuous year, to put it mildly, I don't know if there are enough words to, to describe it, but, you know, we've had this year where different property types have gone through different cycles, where we've had massive, you know, lockdowns, where there was so much uncertainty, where there was so much speculation about distress, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're, you know, we're increasingly at this moment where, we know some of the subsectors that are performing well. We know some of the subsectors that that were suffering that are now coming back. And we're even seeing, you know, office, maybe there were some questions about the return to office. Now it seems suddenly like a, a, there's a lot more bullishness about that happening faster and maybe offices will be okay. You know, just given like all of what's happening in the marketplace, what what are institu- what are the kinds of clients that you're working with? What are they looking to do right now? Are they looking to buy? Are they looking to sell? And or what kind of deals are are they? How are they? How are they tapping into your expertise? And what kind of de- what kind of conversations are you having about about navigating this marketplace? Yeah, great question. 2020 was a year clearly categorized by disruption. You know, when COVID first presented itself, really sidelined a lot of our clients just because they're more risk adverse Mm -hmm. and we're looking for some guidance and some clarity on some bright spots of when to enter back into, you know, the marketplace and and where and how, just because of, you know, the fact that liquidity and risk is just so important to the composition of how they derive at their real estate decisions. But, you know, we're still seeing an institutional clients looking for diversification and how they kind of construct uh, their portfolios and, you know, what concentrations and property types and geographies and where they want to invest in the life cycle. I I think that what we're also seeing is last year, you know, a lot of the investors focused on refinancing. So our, our mortgage banking platform was extremely busy on the refi side because uh, you know, it, it, it largely driven just by the low interest rates, but acquisitions are up 100% year over year, which is a good thing. We've been really, really busy. There's a ton of equity chasing as well as debt uh, out there, just providing a lot of different capitalization structures for quality deals. And fundraising's been up, which is kind of like interesting, interesting right? Because yeah. I think you would have thought that maybe fundraising would have been down just given that folks were a little uncertain of, you know, how long and, and deep the um, pandemic would have would have been. But nonetheless, fundraising efforts were up considerably, which has been good. But in terms of, you know, we're, you know, multifamily has been the bright spot. So I, I don't think we can argue as well as industrial, but we're primarily mm-hmm. focused on multifamily. So the, and I, I think that's driven just given the resiliency of the asset class, which was definitely challenged for sure. You know, we've always talked about how multifamilies generated and provided the strongest 
income and growth characteristics and generated the most attractive risk adjusted returns according to NACREF over the last you know 25 years or so but that came into you know question with when the pandemic hit and everyone was focused on collections but you know the cl- the asset class has proven to be resilient and very you know hot right now and you know just given demographics as well as you know, just the long-term characteristics and fundamentals that we're seeing associated with multifamily. Yeah, and I think, is it also true with multifamily in particular that the kind of the, the sort of the assets that the institution, the multifamily assets of the institutional investors would most likely be owning or investing in tended to perform fairly well. Like they were, they were not the ones that had as much of the collections issues as some of like the, you know, smaller buildings or single or, or where the, where the resident, the tenants were more likely to have jobs that were disrupted or lost or, you know, coming and going. So it seemed like early on we had this, like, oh my God, are people going to be pay pay rent? Then it turned out actually the tenants of the highest quality assets were pretty much able to work from home and able to kind of keep going. And so they didn't, and I think we saw those sort of numbers in NMHC's uh, rental tracker from month to month, that, which, you know, didn't seem to come down nearly as much as I think some of us were afraid of when, when this all started. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, David. I think, you know, there was a lot of focus and attention on collections, but at the end of the day, you know, people need a, li- a place to live. And I think they're willing to allocate as much of their capital or, you know, paycheck or, or savings towards, you know, having that roof over their head. And, and you know, there might've been some consolidation with maybe, you know, some uh, folks in one bedrooms agreeing to team up and find a roommate to share a two bedroom or whatever it may be, but largely the collection stayed pretty strong. And we, we've seen some shifts, you know, like with the urban env- environments, you know, in just the urban properties, occupancy may have shifted down with vacancies increasing, but generally, you know, the collections, those folks who decided to stay were were agreed to pay rent and pay current. And now, you know, we're seeing, you know, just some shifts, structural shifts from urban to suburban, and that's just given lifestyle preferences, just given folks have been able to work remotely or work where they as long as they're, you know, near a phone and have a, you know, Wi-Fi and a- access to, you know, living where I think they would prefer, we call that the untethered renter, which we're keeping a watchful eye on. That's probably a new term. I'm not sure if you if you heard that yet, David. No, um, that's a new one for me. Yeah. So that's what we're watching now is how does that untethered renter perform and, you know, just trying to get into the psychology of, you know, what will things look like post-COVID in a more normalized renting situation? Will they go back to cities or will they, you know, decide to stay where they are? Yeah, I think that's 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 definitely a thing that we've been trying to keep an eye on and assess, and it's just really hard to figure out. And I I feel like some of the, I mean, I know there's this huge, there's huge demand for single family housing and single family rentals right now. And then there is, there's clearly been some shift but I just, I'm a big believer in cities and and a big advocate for city living. I mean, I live in Brooklyn, so, you know, case in point, but I kind of feel like it's a little, I, I mean, I guess we're going to see if I feel it's a little bit overblown because I feel like the things that people loved about cities are going to come back and people are going to want to experience those things. So I don't know. 
I, I agree. We'll I, know I, the, agree. Yeah. I, I agree. I think this, you know, once there's more confidence in, you know, some of the, I think corporations require their employees to return back to work. That's going to be the real test. And we'll see a structural shift back to the cities to a certain extent. There's going to always be that one renter that holds down sides, you know what, this lifestyle is, you know, worth a, you know, 25% discount to what I was making maybe in New York City. And now I have a better quality of life. The only other thing that, you know, which is driving a lot of the single family rentals is just the aging population in general selling, you know, right. taking advantage right. of the of this peak single family rental market. I mean, prices are up, I think on average 12% across the country year over year, which is astounding. And I think largely driven by low interest rates. So I think people are realizing, well, why don't I sell at the top of the market and look at it? It's a renting option. So, but you know, I want more of a home feel with a yard because I have a pet or I have children. So I think, or, or grandchildren. So I think that that's going to be, you know, like we're seeing that single family rental momentum pick up. And I think that that is probably here to stay, just given home ownership rates will probably stay more on the lower end of historical averages than not. Just affordability is just becoming more, you know, constrained and limited, right? In, in, in terms of being able to raise, you know, and, and, and save, you know, incomes aren't growing as fast as rents or home uh, ownership of single family homes. So I think that that's something to keep a watchful eye on. So looking back at the the institutions themselves, you know, the clients that you're talking about, you mentioned that they're, they actually are also raising funds now too. Are, well, given the money that they're maybe already had, you know, the capital that they already raised, plus this new funds, what kind of pressures are they facing pressures in terms of cap, the of, money that needs to be invested by a certain date or on the flip side funds that are that that need to be sold out by a certain date are there any kind of time pressures that are factors in 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 how transact and what kind of transactions may be happening in the next you know six months a great question i i think generally the institutional investors are looking for opportunities you know they're always looking at risk profiles too I think there's pressure to deploy capital, but smartly. So I don't think that they're, you know, they're more of a defensive investor on, on, on average, I would say, and they may look at risk and more, you know, value add or opportunistic, but generally they're looking to make good decisions. So I don't think, you know, they want to invest carelessly. So there's no added pressure necessarily to put money to work, but there's a desire to put the money to work. And I think that they find there is opportunity and it may look different to different investors. And I think that's important because of the risk tolerance is, is just different across the spectrum. But, you know, there's just so much money that, you know, some of these larger institutional investors are, are, are sitting on. So there's a strong desire to put that money to work. Just, you know, tying it back to, to multifamily, you know, we're seeing investors are looking to invest across life cycle. So you still have those, you know, core investors that are looking for more core profile type of transactions, lower risk, more income oriented. That's more of like a coupon clipper. And they may hold that, you know, 10 plus years and, and that's okay. They're not looking to money, you know, they want that money to kind of sit out there and kind of earn that current income return that they're you know, projecting. And then you still see the value 
you know, the value add strategy being employed, although that's getting a little, you know, difficult to identify just because yield compression and cap rates are just at all time lows. So, you know, there, there is that value investor and, you know, that may be shifting in, in terms of, you know, well, you know, we would hope to get the, the value pop, but we're okay with the underlying investment generating more of a current income return. But as things, you know, continue to evolve, if there's an opportunity to redo kitchens or bathrooms, or I would say, you know, like install carports or, you know, some other type of amenity to Mm -hmm. raise rents, you know, they're looking at that. And then largely, you know, we're undersupplied, you know, just in terms of number of units and the demand for apartments across the country. So we're seeing a lot of interest in ground up development again. So I think that that's going to be a way for them to generate higher uh, returns is, is taking construction risk with a, with a developer or a sponsor. But also one thing that I wanted to touch on is ESG is just becoming more apparent and, and, and important to investors that there's an environmental, social and governance um, component to the deal. So on environmental, looking at you know green practices or sustainability or acquiring or building to lead certification, mm-hmm. or on the social aspect, looking at affordable housing either with a capital A or lowercase a, and just investing back into communities. So I think that you're seeing uh, you know great pressure from the institutional um, investors to allocate capital to managers that have strong ESG protocols in place and are, you know, looking to improve the quality of housing, you know, across those segments and and the communities that, you know, some of these residents live in. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because I would think like some like institutions, especially like maybe not ever, you know, there's a lot of talk about ESG. And for some investors, that might just be a good to have, but for institutions, I think some of them are facing like real mandates around, you know, very much so. Yeah, around, around doing this, so that is a real thing. That and it seems like it could be a difference maker for a deal or for you know a real estate firm that's looking to raise money if they can like really separate themselves on this front. Oh, I I, I totally agree, and you know, and again, now that there's just so much focus on it, there's more transparency involved because I think, you know, folks would come in and say, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to institute some green policies and that may be, you know, putting in, you know, lead light bulbs in, you know, across our, our, our buildings or water saving, you know, toilets and whatever it may be, or, you know, just more, you know, we're going to start recycling. I mean, these are basic things. It may seem, you know, very practical to you as an individual, but, you know, to kind of roll these out on large scale, you know, I, I think that, you know, people are setting themselves apart for sure. But now you're, you're able to kind of show from an operating performance, the benefits of how actually instituting and implementing these, you know, practices have benefited the investors and putting, you know, just increasing net operating income, you know, reducing expenses, whatever it may be, as well as the welfare of the tenants. Like some tenants will pay more in rent to know that they live in a more sustainable community at the property level. So I think that that's, you know, that's that's differentiating. And I think we're going to see m- more institutional investors 
talking about ESG, as well as implementing this into their everyday business plans, and then measuring it as well. And, you know, there's some benchmarks out there that are starting to follow it closely where, where institutional investors are submitting, you know, their performance and it's being benchmarked, which I think, you know, a lot of there, a lot of benchmarking is being done by institutional investors now more on a on a portfolio basis. And that's how they're being measured if they're performing or not. But I think this ESG component is going to play a, a larger role in the composition of their portfolios and how managers are being selected. Yeah, and the recycling thing makes it may, may sound small, but I wrote about waste and recycling for a couple of years and recycling at multifamily buildings is a whole thing. <laughs> like oh, that very is, much so. so like that, whereas the residents of a multifamily buildings Sometimes, you know, yeah, it was just interesting to like something like I think you said that maybe you didn't think about, but actually it turns out that, you know, when people live in homes versus when they live in apartments, somehow the way that they, their recycling behaviors are different. And so it becomes a much more of a, a management error or, or an ad to be able to, to, to provide that and, and, and get you know, the, the waste and recycling handled correctly at, at, at a multifamily building. For sure. So one other pivot, I wanted to make another pivot here, which is, okay, so now, you know, talking about your clients, you know, again, with this context of this past year, has that, has that relationship evolved in terms of the way that the communication and the reporting happens and just the cultivating of those relationships? And is that, are, are there things that are, even as we get to, you know, I mean, real estate's a an industry where people do deals face to face and all, you know, and I think everyone's going to, going to still do a lot of that visiting sites and we're going to do more of that now, but are there ways that that relationship evolved in the past year that you think will, you know, new things that were important or things that, that may stay as, even as we move back to, to a, a greater sense of normalcy? Yeah, for, I, I, I agree with you. And I, I, I think it's important how we've distinguished ourselves at Bercadia is we find and feel we are more advisors to our clients um, than brokers. And mm -hmm. that's how like we distinguish ourselves. And that advisory role is just begun, going to become more important as investors become more sophisticated. And we're finding institutional investment portfolios are becoming less about transactions and deals, like more less deal focused and more about strategy and, and how to kind of find that marginal difference in performance so that we've taken that role on. And that's, you know, and I think, you know, in this changing world, you know, post-COVID post climate change, you know, investors need to develop a strategy and, and hang every acquisition they make onto that strategy because they're going to be measured. So we are doing that, you know, and, and, and bringing those actionable insights to our clients to help them make better real estate decisions. One way that we're doing that is we've made a significant long-term investment in technology and pr mm -hmm. proprietary data to develop um, a unique and fully integrated platform that marries our local real estate expertise with our capital markets knowledge. So there's just, you know, I would say, you know, there's just a heightened focus on cutting edge technologies like machine learning, artificial intelligence, automation, and blockchain that will be, you know, vital 
uh, to moving commercial real estate forward and helping organizations provide value to its clients as they manage deal flow. Yeah, it just seems like such an interesting, you know, time because this industry for a long time seemed to be very tech averse and now, but there was all this information <laughs> and now turning that, like, I think like you're talking about turning that information into intelligence, turning it into, into, into ways that can make improve processes and improve the way that you're serving clients. It's just a very interesting time, I think, to be, to be, to be covering this sector to just to see how, how this stuff is now being implemented and, and being brought to investors and, and improving the way that things are, are, are happening. Well, I think it has inter incremental value. Like if you could, you know, everyone has the same, you know, ex external data, right? Like you mm -hmm. could, you could subscribe to Axiometrics or to Yardi or right. to CoStar, right? So everyone's, you, you know, basing their decisions off a, you know, a similar set of data. But if you could, you know, provide that actual insight that may be different to help them make a better decision and, and incrementally drive more value. That's, that's, you know, that, that's the differentiator. And that's what we're trying to do right. is just kind of provide those types of insights to help them make better real estate decisions. Mm -hmm. well, well, this has all been, I've taken, taken a good chunk of your time here. I appreciate you. You know, I've been bouncing around a little bit, but you've kind of, you've answered all my questions. You've been going with me. So I appreciate you, you following my train of thought on all this stuff. Before we wrap up, I just want to say, ask if there was like anything, any, any points that, or any things that you think the audience should know that I have not asked you about, that would be good just to underscore at this point. You know, we're, we're thrilled about where the real estate market is. You know, we don't do a lot of predictive analysis in terms of projecting, you know, where things will be, but, you know, we're here to serve our clients and we're trying to take that advisory role to the next level. And we're here to serve our, the institutional client base on a, on a national basis. And we're excited about the, the way that the 2021 year has started and we're looking forward to, you know, serving our clients throughout the rest of this year and beyond. Thanks, David. Uh, thank you. And good, good luck with the, with the, with this business. And it sounds like you guys are uh, off and running, so it's going to be great. Wonderful. Thanks again for having me. David, this was fantastic. Obviously, you know, you always have great conversations, great guests. David, do you have any closing thoughts for today's podcast? No, just to thank, you know, the, the listeners for, you know, riding this out with us and, you know, and if, if I guess it's just like, I don't know if I've actually done this kind of a plea before, but if, you know, if anybody's out there who's listening, who is interested in, you know, has ideas for guests or topics or things that we haven't talked about, you know, just drop us a line and, and let us know. And thank you for, you know, continue to listen to, to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So where should they send that information? They could email me at david.org. Bodemer, B-O-D-A-M-E-R at Informa, inform with letter A at the end.com. Perfect. Again, thank you, Dory, for being on the show. David, thank you so much for bringing on the show. And our last thank you goes to you, listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Common Area Podcast with David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This also makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at WMRE, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back in two weeks for all the stories that matter to you. And we'll talk to you soon.
Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WMRE or Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. Today's podcast was brought to you by Ryan, liberating our clients from the burden of being overtaxed, freeing their capital to invest, grow, and thrive.